0: Welcome back to the podcast for week three, the Bible reading. We're going to be talking about Genesis chapter 27, verse 30 through Genesis 38, 30. With me today is Matthew and Aaron. Welcome.
1: Thanks for having me back. Yeah, Uh,
2: thanks for letting us continue to come back.
0: Aaron, why don't you give us an overview of the reading in
2: Genesis? Okay, so we're picking up halfway through Genesis 27. And the Bible plan is a little bit weird because it cuts us off halfway through this story where Jacob essentially steals the blessing from Esau under the guidance of his mother. That's happened now. Jacob receives the blessing, and he makes Esau really, really upset about these things. Esau is planning to kill Jacob as soon as his father has died, essentially, right? And uh, Jacob's mother hears about this. And she knows that he needs to depart. He needs to go away. And mixed into the drama is the fact that Esau has wives that are really troublesome to both Rebecca and to Isaac. And so under the guise of sending Jacob off to get better wives, when really it's to protect Jacob, Rebecca and Isaac both send him off. And in chapter 28, Isaac gives a new blessing or renews the blessing that was given to him and to abraham by god to jacob so in verse 3 isaac says may god almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you so that you become an assembly of peoples may god give you and your offspring the blessing of abraham that you may possess the land where you live as a foreigner the land god gave to abraham so essentially The Abrahamic covenant and promises and blessings are being carried on now with Jacob. He is the singular seed that carries on the blessing, and Esau's not. So once again, the younger is blessed over the older, we might say. Esau sees this. He gets very upset about these things, and he notices that Isaac blessed Jacob and sent him off to get a wife, and that Jacob was not going to marry a Canaanite girl, So he finally realizes his father disapproves of his wives. So he goes to Ishmael, the other son that didn't receive the blessing. So now you have Esau and Ishmael coming together, Isaac and Jacob, even though Isaac doesn't love Jacob in the same way that Rebecca does. So you start to see a splitting of these family lines along the way. But then Ishmael has daughters. So Esau takes one of his daughters for a wife. So now he has even more wives. So just trouble compounding with Esau. But Jacob then goes to see his family, essentially, distant relatives to find a wife. And on the way, he has a vision where there's a ladder going up to the sky. And the Lord speaks to him, essentially reaffirming the Abrahamic blessing now to Jacob, just as Isaac had done. So it's like the Lord is confirming the blessing that Isaac just gave to Jacob The significance of this that I'd want to point out as we go is just that this is probably like the stairway is an accessing of the domain of the gods or something. So this is a sacred place and it becomes an important place because when Jacob wants to commune with the Lord, he's going to come back to this place. So unlike the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve could perhaps be assured that God's presence would be there, when that relationship broke, Now they're looking for a place where the human and the divine can meet together and Jacob finds it here so he's going to keep returning to it. And this is a theme that will develop as we read through the Old Testament, this idea of sacred space or sacred place. In the wilderness you have the tabernacle and then as Israel develops you have the temple where you can go to this place and be reasonably confident that God will hear you and you can hear from God. So this kind of develops a idea of what it looks like to commune with the Lord. Um, So that's important, but he continues his journey. And as you mentioned last week, AJ, we have a well scene. And as soon as we get to the well scene, we just know this means that there's probably something somewhat romantic that's about to happen, and we are not disappointed. There is this lady, Rachel, the shepherdess, who is there, and, and Jacob is smitten so to speak. So he wants to marry her. In fact, he kissed Rachel and wept loudly. And I don't know if that broke customs or what, but I think he's definitely being expressive here and identifying her as the lady he'd like to marry. The story continues. And if this is going to be like Isaac's wife, everything will go smoothly, right? When when Abraham's servant went to find a wife for Isaac, he saw her at the well, he went to her family, there was some back and forth chit chat, but ultimately they sent her off and she was willing to go. So we might expect that Jacob is going to interact with this guy Laban, the brother of his mother, and that Laban will say, yes, take my daughter and go back to your family and um, you know, ask her, does she want to go today? And she would respond, yes. But something very, very different happened. When they get to the house, um, Jacob stayed with him for a month and apparently no marriage has happened yet. So that's 30 days, Um, even though he had this express purpose of finding a wife. And the whole time, Jacob's been working for Laban and Laban eventually says, you know, you're related to me. But just because you're related to me, you shouldn't work for nothing. What should I be paying you for this help? It points out here in verse 16 of chapter 29. Now, Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah. The younger was named Rachel. Leah had tender eyes, but Rachel was shapely and beautiful, and Jacob loved Rachel. Now, I just want to make a few comments about this. The first is that I think it's hard for us to imagine what these ladies looked like, in part because we might have different standards of beauty. And there are some interesting articles on the internet. Even if you Googled conceptions of beauty in the United States, in different decades, there would be different body types, we might say, or styles or figures that would be considered conventionally attractive. So it's hard to know what the conventional attractive woman was back then, but Rachel apparently was it and Leah was not. And then there's a lot of debate about what it means that Leah had tender eyes. I read an article about this a year or so ago, and there's some speculation that maybe she had some sort of visible disability or a mental handicap or something like that. But there was something different about her that was noticeable and did not make her as attractive to Jacob as Rachel was. So we need to know these things. Um, Because if you have this situation in mind, as the story progresses, you can feel the anger that Jacob is about to have because just as Jacob deceived his father, so now Jacob will be deceived by his uncle. And I think it, it's also interesting to know that there's somewhat of a parallel between Isaac, who is going blind, and now Leah, who had tender eyes. You know, there, there's this theme of blindness, maybe, or or deception that's carried along in both of these stories. Um, but Jacob tells Laban, well, I'll keep working for you. Why don't you give me your daughter, Rachel, for my wife? He even offered to work seven years for the younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban replied, it's better that I give her to you than to some other guy. So stay with me, work these seven years. So Jacob worked seven years before he got to marry her. That's also significant. So now seven years in a month, he's been here. He's been away from his family. So if you want to think about it in terms of like if you left high school to go to college and you're in college for four years, and then you stayed living in that place for three more years, and then finally you're marrying whoever you've been interested in that whole time that you went to college with and that that you were hanging out with in church or whatever. It's been a long time, but to Jacob, it seemed like only a few days because of his love for her. So she was totally worth it. And then he goes to Laban and says, It's it's time. Let me sleep with my wife. So Laban invited all the men of the place. They have a feast. And then Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob and he slept with her. So
1: the wrong daughter was given. What happened there? So how, this, how does he not notice? Also, the whole tender eyes thing? She's slow or something? Like what? I think
2: so. It's hard to say, but that's what a lot of people have speculated. Because it's such an obscure phrase. But I think that's probably it.
1: It was like some kind of ancient um, phrase or whatever. It's like a nice, maybe a nice way of saying slow. Yeah, like we have we codified slow. language
2: for things, right? right. We'll, we'll say things like someone is, uh, is mentally handicapped, like I, I did earlier. You know, we, we might use language like that that doesn't get into the specifics of the problem. And maybe this is it. I think Jacob's met his match here with another
0: deceiver, his uncle. And in that culture, I think with bales and possibly alcoholic beverages being served at a a wedding party, I think that's how this happened, this occurred.
1: Yeah,
2: I I would agree. I think they're feasting. Um, They're probably getting drunk at this feast. It's probably a multiple day feast. And in the end, Laban offers the other daughter and you'd imagine that the daughters have to be in on this switch because from the start, you know, during the feast, it's hard to say because there are some ancient customs where like at a feast like this, the women wouldn't be present because the men would be getting drunk and so it was like protecting them from the men maybe or something. But in either case, the point is that Jacob was deceived. The deceiver was deceived. He was outwitted and he woke up with the wrong woman. Jacob was out Jacob he was out Jacob, because his name means something like deceiver or supplanter or something like that. So Jacob is obviously unhappy. He appeals to Laban and Laban just says, well, it's not the custom in our country for the younger daughter to get married before the older daughter. And obviously Laban's had trouble marrying off the older daughter over these seven years that Jacob's been working. So he makes a deal with him. He says, complete a week of this wedding celebration, and then we'll also give you the younger daughter in return for working for another seven years. Uh, So Jacob takes the deal. He decides he's going to have two wives. He's going to have the woman that he loves. He finished the week of celebration, and then even before he worked those seven years, immediately on the front end of that seven, uh, he was given Rachel as a wife as well. And Jacob slept with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And um, this resonates with the language of Isaac loving Esau and Rebecca loving Jacob. So there are some family troubles here. When the Lord saw that Leah was neglected, he opened her womb. So they've uh, been having a sexual relationship here, no children are being born. Leah now becomes pregnant, but Rachel was unable to conceive, and over the next several chapters, you see a lot of back and forth, all with this plot of conception and barrenness, and a battle between these two wives for the love of their husband. Leah produces child after child. She thinks that will finally get her husband to love her, and that just doesn't happen. They engage in some bickering, some some deal-making along the way, and we need to, as much as we are maybe bored by the repetition of these things, we need to connect it back to the promise that God gave to Jacob on his way, and the blessing Isaac put on Jacob, that he would become a great nation, so to speak, And, and that's what's starting to happen here, even in broken and unconventional ways. Anything you guys want to say about those chapters before I move on through the the departure of Jacob from his uncle.
1: I guess I have a question, um, kind of the back and forth between the sisters and Rachel being jealous that she can't have children, she's having difficulty. She gives one of her maids to Jacob. Is that just fine? Or is that one of those things we're supposed to kind of know is implied, like, they shouldn't have done that?
2: Yeah, I think we should have a moral compass that says that's bad. Uh, And if we are remembering what Sarah did with Hagar giving Hagar to Abraham. We're just seeing the same scenes play out over and over again, aren't we? And it always ends up in trouble. There there are problems that follow here. We need to say that that was a wrong decision. Even though when they've done that and the handmaid becomes pregnant, they Leah says this in verse 18 of chapter 30, Leah said God has rewarded me for giving my slave to my husband. That, that's problematic. She is not interpreting...
1: Or oh, wait, the, that would be Rachel, right? Leah said it in verse oh, Leah 18. Said
2: it? The point is that they're interpreting the immediate success of their mission to be God's blessing, and I don't think we should identify it as that. I don't think we can trust their moral compasses. More than that, you see this deal that's made with mandrakes, um, the, this you know root that maybe looks like a baby, um, is, if, that, is that like one from Harry Potter? Yeah, mandrakes? if you watch Harry Potter where where they're planting the mandrakes, you have to have earmuffs over your head because if you pull them out, they scream so loud, they'll bruise your eardrums. They look like little babies. That's what I imagine they, they look like. Uh, but it was probably thought that it aided fertility. Um, it, it looks like a baby, you eat it, and, and maybe it helps with fertility. And over and over again, these ladies are appealing to immoral or wrong ways to conceive, or what we might call junk science. I think that's what Jim Hamilton refers to this method as, junk science, maybe mommy blogger kind of fertility methods to have children. But the narrator over and over again shows us that those things don't work and that they're wrong. And ultimately when conception happens, it's because the Lord opens the womb. And that's what the narrator gives us in verse 22. God listened to Rachel and he opened her womb. And, and this is something we saw with Sarah already. We see it now, and we'll see it down the road, like in the book of Ruth, where um, the Lord grants Ruth conception. So I think that we want to say the promises are being fulfilled even when people are not attributing um, the fulfillment of the promises to God when they should, and they're attributing these things to God um, maybe in a moral way when, when they have violated God's morality. So we've just seen the multiplication
0: of children, and now we're going to see the multiplication of property, possessions.
2: Yeah, so so Jacob and Laban are back at it again, and um, Laban talks to Jacob. This is at the end of chapter 30. I thought this was interesting. In verse 27, Laban told Jacob, I found favor with you, so please stay. I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. I don't know he did to divine this, but he knows that his blessing is because of the Lord. But then as the story goes on, it looks like Jacob doesn't trust that the blessing is actually from the Lord, because when he's trying to multiply the flocks, once again, just like his wives are doing, it looks like he engages in what, what Hamilton calls junk science, doing a certain ritual that he thinks is going to Bring about the desired results. So Laban sees that the Lord is blessing him, but he's not trusting the Lord. Um, he's he's going to attempt other means. So the way that we should respond to the, these things, I, I think, is to recognize that God is going to secure the blessings despite the failings and lack of faithfulness on the part of the individuals who he has chosen to bless. I don't think that we should necessarily look at this and come up with a full-orbed farming and fertility theology, though perhaps we need to be influenced by it more than we'd want and to recognize that God is the author of life. He has authority and power over the womb, both of humans and of animals. So we we learn to trust the Lord in, in these moments. But Jacob decides he's going to separate anyway. He keeps getting cheated by Laban who's cared only, only really for his own prosperity and not for his son-in-law and his daughters. And so they decide to go. And even then they trick Laban by leaving when um, without really announcing it. And Laban's unhappy about this. So he pursues Jacob and overtakes him. God warns him not to speak good or evil against Jacob. Um, he knows that Jacob's under God's protection They have sort of an odd encounter where Rachel has taken the household gods of her father. This is really a bizarre scene, and I would just suggest that we're going to find somewhat of a parallel with it when we get to the story of Joseph and his brothers, or his brothers are leaving, and they've taken this possession from the household of pharaohs, right? Um, So there may be some literary piece along the way there but they leave and jacob covenants with laban that they are not going to fight each other that that jacob will take care of laban's daughters and on the way back um, they ended up running into esau but before that happens before jacob meets esau jacob wrestles with god this is a very famous scene depicted in paintings and, and these sorts of things and in, in this moment, as Jacob's wrestling with this physical representation of the Lord, he is renamed Israel, or at least prophetically renamed Israel. That, that will show up again when he starts going by that name. But you really see this conflict between God and Jacob. And in one way, Jacob prevails, but in another way, ultimately, the Lord prevails.
1: In Genesis 31, where God speaks to Laban and he says, Don't say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And then the majority of the rest of the chapter is Laban speaking to Jacob. What's up with that? Well,
2: Laban actually repeats these words to Jacob as well. So he apparently believes that he is abiding by that warning. And I think we should assume that he did. You know, I, I think maybe the point of the Lord's statement is don't try to deceive this guy and don't threaten him. So don't don't offer him something to keep him in your land as you were doing before. So don't don't speak something good for him to try to get him to stay, and don't speak against him to try to get him to stay. Allow him to go. He's returning to the land of his fathers as he's been directed.
1: So just speak straight and neutral to him.
2: Well, don't don't try to use your words to get your way and to get him to stay with you. Uh, if you remember earlier, the whole bit about the flocks was Laban trying to get Jacob to stay. And I think the Lord is just instructing Laban, it's time for Jacob to go. Don't offer him anything good to keep him back and don't threaten him to keep him back.
1: Okay. Because basically up to this point, Laban's interactions with Jacob have just been basically rooted with manipulation in order to get Jacob to do kind of whatever Laban wanted or whatever would kind of benefit him more.
2: Yeah, Laban is the kind of guy who just wants to increase his prosperity. So if you remember all the way back when Abraham's servant came to seek out a wife, as soon as Laban saw the servant with his sister, Rebecca and Rebecca had all these jewels on her, Laban was super psyched and he invited Abraham's servant in. He, he saw money there. And now with Jacob with him, he sees money his flocks are increasing. He's been blessed immeasurably, and it's because Jacob has been with him. He's admitted that to Jacob. So he doesn't want Jacob to go, but not because he loves Jacob, but because he wants Jacob to
1: increase as well. So he's kind of like a little greedy, scratch and claw kind of guy, just kind of grabbing at whatever he can.
2: I think that's right. So the story continues on. There's a brief interaction with Esau where Jacob keeps sending people forward he divides up his camp he's afraid of esau he he gives many gifts um, but then ultimately they meet they have some level of reconciliation um, and and then instead of going to the town like they had agreed jacob goes in a different direction and he settles there Um, it seems perhaps in a way that he deceived esau along the way there once again um, but probably out of a sense of self-protection. Um, but then Rachel dies, giving birth to the final son. And um, But at this point, Jacob has 12 sons through his two wives and their handmaids. And then Isaac dies at the end of chapter 35. And in there, Esau and Jacob do come together and bury him, just like Isaac and Ishmael came together to bury Abraham. So then in 36, we have Esau's family's genealogy, and you see the development of his family line a lot faster than Jacob's family line. Uh, You see a lot of blessing of the Lord, almost a second blessing uh, from Abraham upon Esau, we might say, but then we really get a major shift in the narrative as we come to chapter 37, where Jacob's son, Joseph, takes the main stage. So in chapter 37, Joseph comes onto the
1: scene and... Can I ask a question? Sure. All right. Hopefully it's quick. Jacob was really paranoid about meeting Esau because he hadn't seen him in a long time and he was really mad and last he knew he kind of wanted to kill him. And when they meet, it's very civil, peaceful, you know, it seems like, and Esau is just kind of happy to see him. Is that more a testament to Esau's just kind of impulsiveness and like up and down kind of hot-headedness more so than like oh he's had a change of character and now he's a changed man and he can accept his brother because I think we discussed last week how he's referred to in the New Testament very negatively. Mm -hmm. So is this just him being all over the place again?
2: Probably a little both. I mean I think there's probably some character development there but who knows? I mean, he seems genuinely excited to see Jacob's wives and children. He's an uncle now, right? Um, so it seems like he's happy about these things. But as we get to chapter 37, there's a major shift in the scene as Joseph starts to take center stage. And he's 17 years old here. He's tending sheep with his brothers, but they don't like him. Why? Why already would we think that his brothers would not like him. A.J.? For one thing, in verse 2,
0: you know, he's being a tattletale. He's being a snitch to his father. It says that Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers to his father. And we're not even told what happened, What if it was something that was actually wicked, or we see these dreams where, you know, Joseph is being pictured as one to whom others will bow down. And, of course, his brothers don't like
2: that. Yeah, and I think even more than that, Jacob loves Joseph more than the rest of them. And in verse 4, it says, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him because they saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers. And right here, once again, you see Jacob acting like his father, or Israel acting like Isaac, where he loves one child more than the others and strife ensues. And that's a parallel that we should watch through this whole story, Because just as Isaac was deceived by one of his sons by means of another son and his garments, now Israel or Jacob is going to be deceived by his sons by means of a garment, by means of a robe. So there are many parallels
1: here as we go along the way. Um, One parallel, uh, I think it's a parallel that I noticed, um, even in the very start start of the story where it says, Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers, and then his brothers were mad and hated him. That, to me, parallels very closely with Cain and Abel again. It's the same thing where the brothers, you know, whatever it was, they weren't doing something that was good or right, and instead of changing and correcting whatever it was they were doing wrong or bad, they respond with anger and hatred and seek out to destroy the person that's making them look bad and it's just the same thing
0: it, you're right. It, it says that Joseph was pasturing the flock with his brothers and that's that's what Abel was. He was a shepherd. I think I think we are meant to make that parallel.
2: and adding to that, where does this happen? it out it happens out in the field, right It's we'll, we'll come to see in a few moments but Joseph probably antagonized his siblings a bit along the way and even his father. Joseph relayed two dreams to them where his whole family bows down to them. And I think the second one is even more striking because in that dream, uh, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to him. And he told his father and his brothers, and his father recognizes, are you saying that I and your mother and your brothers are going to bow down to you? And uh, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. And I think that's the same kind of phrase where Mary and Joseph are given this prophecy from the Lord that, or, or this revelation from the Lord that Mary was pregnant, and, and Joseph keeps these things in mind.
0: Yeah, that's the, the same wording in the, the Greek translation yeah. in, as we see in Luke 2, 19 and in Luke 2, 51. Mary treasured up these things. I think Luke, at least, wants us to think of Joseph.
2: Yeah, and I I think the significance of this is, even though Joseph's brothers probably were just jealous, and that's their only response to this, Joseph's father, Israel, has understood that there's a blessing from God that's been passed down to one singular seed over and over again, and perhaps he's pondering, am I to bless Joseph in the same way that I was blessed. Um, we, we don't know exactly what he was thinking. I think so. I would like to make the
0: case that this multicolored robe was a royal robe. And we know that this blessing being passed down would be at one point a, a king to rule over. And we're, we're seeing that in the dreams. And I think if we're reading this book, you know, we'd have to think, is this the one that, that is promised? And in this next scene, we, we would maybe expect to see a coronation. Mm -hmm. but that's not that's not what happens
2: yeah and and i think just to add to that israel is looking at joseph and this guy is having dreams that seem to be from the lord and the only time that that's happened to jacob is when he's been at bethel right and so you maybe if you're jacob you're looking at this guy and saying he's me but he's a better me he he's a more significant me so there there may be this idea that the promises are going to come to fulfillment through Joseph. But the story goes on, and as Joseph is sent out to his brothers, they plot to kill him, but then they come across an opportunity to make money off of him instead of just killing him. So they sell him off, and then they send this robe that Joseph's father gave him back to him after dipping it in blood and essentially are using it as an indication that Joseph has died, and his father recognized it. He believes an animal devoured Joseph. And so Jacob mourns. He tears his clothes, puts sackcloth around his waist. He mourned his son. And then in verse 35, it says all his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And I think what's ironic here is that these brothers who hated Joseph because his father loved them, even by getting rid of him, they didn't get his, their father's love back. His father just continued to express love, but now through mourning instead of through favoritism. We do see some poetic justice
0: where Jacob is being deceived. You know, he deceived his father with goat skin, and now he's being deceived with goat blood Mm -hmm. by his sons. And just another New Testament connection, we see that Judah places forth that idea to sell Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. In the New Testament, Judas, another Judah, sells Jesus for 30 shekels of silver. Inflation? Yeah,
2: Yeah, there there are some striking parallels there. And on one level, I think we want to recognize that this book is just a work of literary artistry. And then on another level, I think these parallels are indicative of God continuing to be faithful to people who continue to be unfaithful. And you, you see that unfaithfulness expressed in similar ways and the repetition highlights these things for us, so we grasp onto them and recognize it. Certainly there's more than that going on, but we end knowing that Joseph has been sold into slavery, and then the Midianites sell Joseph to Potiphar in Egypt. Potiphar is an officer, of Pharaoh, and the captain of the guards. So we end this scene knowing that Joseph is alive, but his father ends the scene believing that Joseph has died. Yeah, I just wanted to make a
0: comment that as we read through the story of Joseph, it's not its not intended to be a, a rags to riches story. That's not the point. The point is, while Joseph is a main character, God is really the main character here. And we're supposed to latch on to his sovereign work throughout this whole story of redemption and his people here and the promises that he's making.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. and And that helps us. Uh, in many ways, is we turn the corner to chapter 38, which breaks the Joseph narrative in one way. And it's really an awkward text. It it relays some information that's very negative about Judah. And um, it's sometimes hard to know what to do with this, but I want to just suggest that if we look at it by contrasting Judah and Tamar here, with Joseph and Potiphar's wife in the next chapter, that's at least one angle that we can look at this account. Now, I I want to also say that there's more going on than just that, and that's how narratives work, right? You can look at them from different angles. There are different ideas being communicated through them. I think it would be wrong for us to say that there's one point of a narrative like this, but this is a point of the narrative. At the end of the story, Judah is um, going out and his his wife has died and he is headed somewhere with his friend and his daughter in law tamar who believes she's doing something at least somewhat right here dresses up like a prostitute because she knows that judah's the kind of guy who would turn aside for this prostitute this guy judah who is an old man I mean, he, he's had kids who have grown up and been married, right? So he turns aside on his way to seek out this prostitute. And then in contrast, you have Joseph, who is being, I don't know what the right word is, he, he's being tempted by Potiphar's wife, by this wealthy woman. So you have two characters, one who is seeking out this sexually illicit relationship, and then the other one who refrains from it even when it's offered to him. So there's at least a contrast there. And I think we're intended to learn from that. But perhaps more than that, we look at the end of the story and we hear Judah pronounce a judgment on the situation. And he says that what Tamar did was more righteous or more right than what he did in the past. So there's some character development that happens in Judah here where we start to see that this guy is recognizing where he failed and he's owning up to it. He's recognizing where he was in the wrong. And that helps us by the time we get to the end of the Joseph narrative, where we see Judah demonstrating righteous activity. We wonder how did this guy who sort of led in the charge to kill and then sell Joseph, how, why is he now being the good guy? Well, this event somehow was a turning point for him and it's illustrated here.
1: Propositioned, I think, is what you were looking for. That is
2: exactly the word that I was looking for. Thank you. As we look at, at this story, there are two other additional pieces that narratively are important. First is that just as Jacob was deceived by Judah through this robe that was dripping in blood, now Judah is deceived by Tamar, who's dressed up in a different sort of way. So we have multiple things, uh, you know, tracing all the way back to Isaac being deceived with this case of mistaken identity, and now Judah's being deceived with a case of mistaken identity. So these things I think are interesting. I don't know how significant they are to actually understanding the story, but we have another tale of deception. But the outcome of this story is also significant for redemptive history. So there are children who come from Judah And if we track all the way down through the lineage as we read like the book of Ruth and in the book of Matthew, uh, we start to see that Boaz is descended from this family line. And that's important. So even in this distorted relationship, you're going to see God's anointed king, David, come from this line, from the line of Judah, from Tamar. Most significantly, when you look at the genealogy in the book of Matthew, you see these things referenced there, and that's pretty remarkable as well. Matthew 1, 3, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez third Hezron, Hezron, Aram, all the way down to Boaz. And then, you know, the son of Boaz is Obed, who fathered Jesse, who fathered David, the king.
0: The verse I was looking for was through 411 elders, they say, we're witness. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in this place and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring of the Lord will give you by this young one. So that was like a blessing to Ruth. May your children be Mm -hmm. like these forebears of Tamar and Judah.
2: Yeah, I love it. So following this incident with Judah and Tamar, sons are born, which eventually lead to the line of King David. And that really ends this unique story that's inserted into the Joseph narrative. And the rest of the book of Genesis is going to really be tracking with Joseph's experience in Egypt.
1: Moving on from our Genesis reading into the New Testament, uh, we're reading in Matthew and Just some of the bullet points of what we read this week. Um, Jesus commissions the disciples. He talks about uh, John the Baptist. We have some of that stuff there. Um, He, of course, has some confrontations with the Pharisees, them demanding a sign, and he speaks of the sign of Jonah. And there are also many parables that we read throughout this week. Um, What from these readings in Matthew stood out to you guys?
2: Well, I would just want to make a brief comment about the commissioning of the 12 disciples. We saw in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus called the disciples to himself, and it's almost like he's starting this school of learning for them. And he's pictured as a philosopher, and he's giving a way of being in the world, a whole life philosophy that will lead to human flourishing. So that's what he's doing in chapter 5, is he's giving what it means to be truly happy, right? Happy is the one who, and he gives this listing in what we call the Beatitude. So he's giving a philosophy of a life of flourishing. And as the story goes, Jesus essentially opens the door to heaven as he heals people and casts out demons. He talks about both suffering and prosperity and how these things go together in a full life of flourishing. And at the end of chapter nine, he drives out a demon and it's almost like decisively Heaven is winning this cosmic battle. And so his philosopher students have now been trained in the ways of the great philosopher, and they're being sent out in chapter 10 to carry on his vision for the good life, for a life of flourishing. But it's a commission that also brings warning of persecution and suffering. And we know that these things are going to happen to them. Um, but first, they're going to happen to, to the Lord. And he wants to make clear to them that even though he has in one sense come to bring peace on earth, this message of entering into the kingdom, into the new creation is one that's actually going to divide family. But he tells them, if you're going to follow me, there, there will be division that happens. There will be people who seek to harm you. But ultimately, as you learn to embrace suffering in this life, you will find true life because of it. And as you go, anyone who serves one of my people ultimately serves me. So he commissions them out in that way. We see that Jesus has disciples and followers,
0: and he's doing these teachings and miracles. And John the Baptist in prison hears about this. And he has his disciples ask Jesus if Jesus is the one. I guess I always assumed that John the Baptist kind of was in on Jesus's identity.
2: What is he really asking here? Yeah, I think that's a good question, because at least in Matthew's account of Jesus's baptism, it seems like John recognizes who Jesus is as the Messiah. But now John is in prison, and he sends people to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And it's hard to know exactly what's behind that question. Is this just a moment of doubt? In, in John, where he is looking at his situation in prison and thinking, if Jesus were truly the Messiah, I would be in here. Instead, he's like all of the other false messiahs, people who've proclaimed to be the Messiah before. Did I misunderstand everything? That could be what it is. It could be another way of emphasizing that Jesus's kingdom is going to be different than what was expected. It's really hard to say, but ultimately, I think we just recognize that it fits this paradigm of suffering and power, of rejoicing and fasting, of mourning and happiness that come together as we go, and John is experiencing the persecutions of the kingdom, and he's just seeking a word of confirmation from the Lord that this is truly the Messiah who's come. At the end of chapter 11, Jesus says that anyone who
0: comes to him will find rest, And then in the beginning of chapter 12, we see this confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus about what can happen on the Sabbath.
2: Aaron, what is the connection there? Okay, so I mentioned this a little bit in our pre-show production meeting because I had never made a connection here until I was reading through this text in preparation for this. So on the one hand, I just want to use this as an opportunity to say that reading the Bible is important. And no matter how many times you've read it, and no matter how much education you have, you might find new and surprising things. And this observation happened as I was pairing my Old Testament reading in preparation for teaching about the covenant with Israel on Sunday with this text. And um, so I want to preface what I'm about to say by asking you two a question that might be a trick question.
1: I'm ready to be tricked.
2: Okay. So if you remember the Noahic Covenant, What was the sign of the covenant with Noah?
1: Rainbow. Okay. Nailed it.
2: What was the sign of the covenant with Israel at Sinai?
1: AJ, that's all you.
2: Yep. Now, let me back up. What was the sign of the covenant with Abraham? Circumcision. Okay. So what was the sign of the covenant with Israel? It was the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Keeping the Sabbath was the sign of the covenant with Israel. They were supposed to keep the Sabbath, as the sign of the covenant. And I had never really thought about that before. Um, So Exodus 31, verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, so that you will know that I am the Lord who consecrates you. Observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Whoever profanes it must be put to death. So the the Sabbath is the sign of, of the covenant. I had never thought about that. Um, but it makes sense then when we see Jesus in Matthew twelve explaining that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. It's almost like a parallel statement of him saying, I am the fulfillment of the law. I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. I'm not the I'm not coming to destroy the Sabbath, I'm coming to fulfill it. I, I have authority over it. And it's like Jesus is saying, The old covenant, the covenant at Sinai has come to completion in me. The rest that it pointed you forward to is in me. So at the end of chapter 11, when he says, come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. And then when he demonstrates in chapter 12, that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of the rest, I think he's indicating the old covenant is over. It's come to its completion in me. And now if you want to find rest in God, you won't find it through the old covenant legislation. You'll find it through obeying my commands through obeying the Beatitudes that I gave you in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. I am the way and the only way. Uh, So it really is interesting that he offers rest, but it's connected to the commands, and it's connected to his lordship over the Sabbath, which puts an end to the sign of the Old Covenant. And I think if you look at it as the explanation, it's because in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Jesus is showing, I am ushering in the new creation. This new creation that you've heard about in Isaiah that's been talked about and prophesied, well, this sign of the covenant was a good covenant for as long as the old creation order was there. But with me, I've opened the door to heaven. I've I've brought healing and new life, and I am allowing the new creation to break into the old. And so the Sabbath rest is now going to be found in me
1: looking back at Matthew 10, 34 through 36, it reads, Don't assume that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. And reading that, I mean, it sounds like pretty strong language and maybe a little bit extreme. It's like, oh, Jesus is saying there's going to be all these, you know, potentially big fights and battles between family members because of me. But I, one thing I found interesting is seeing how that plays out two chapters later in Matthew 12, I think the exact thing Jesus was talking about in Matthew 10, it plays out in his own life, and he gives it an example of what it looks like and what you should do, um, where it says he's speaking with the crowds his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. They told him, hey, your mother and brothers are out there. They want some of your time. They want to talk to you. And he basically just ignores them and says, "Who? who's my mother and brothers? For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And I think that's what it looks like. And that's the way it played out in real life for Jesus is it's not these big fights or battles or just all this arguing or something, it's, it's, look, if it it doesn't matter who somebody is, whether they're a parent or a sibling, you know, blood family, where you feel like you have a really strong tie and connection to them, like that doesn't matter if they're not about God's will, if they're not about what's best or what's right, or what's good for you, if they're not helping you along in that you really should not give them much of your time, not your significant, important time. In in this short part at the end of Matthew 12, you know, Jesus is spending time with people, teaching them, talking to them. They're listening. You know, they're receptive to what he's saying. And I think somewhere in the Gospels, it's at one point it's like Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters, they all think he's crazy. And it's like, Jesus is like, I don't care if they're my mother or brothers. They're not about God's will. They're not about what I'm here for, they're going to be a waste of time to give my time to. And I think that, um, I think that's really instructive for us in our everyday life. Whereas I think that's a very common human thing where you maybe feel obligated to people because of a relationship you have with them, whether it's a blood relationship or you just known somebody for a real long time. But it's like, you know, if they're dragging you down, if they're not pointing you towards God, if they're not about God's will in their life, they really shouldn't be a big part of your life either in that way, I don't think. I think that's what this is spelling out. What do you think about that, Aaron? I think the... Or I'm going to jump in here. I
0: think <laughs> the use of family members is significant. You mentioned family ties. Jesus here says he's bringing the sword. And in some cases, it that sword, a sign of separation, cuts those family ties to where this allegiance to Jesus is going to be stronger than any other allegiance, including family.
2: And he's warning that it's going to bring separation in many cases. Yeah, I I agree with both of you. I think that's right. And I think there are positive and negative implications of this. So negatively speaking, we might talk about the relationships that are distanced because of an allegiance to Jesus. And of course we want to put all the caveats of you seek to love people and minister to them and share things in common with them. But I think there are moments in our lives where our commitment to doing what the Lord has put before us is going to draw us away from people who we might be related to and in situations where there might be cultural or family expectations where we're spending a lot of time with them. And that's not possible because of what, what the Lord's put before us. So I think another example in Jesus's life is there was an instance where they were celebrating the Passover, this um, this holiday, this national and religious holiday that was usually celebrated with your family, and Jesus didn't celebrate it with his family. Uh, Probably the the parallel would be if you were pursuing something that was clearly the Lord's calling on your life, and you couldn't go home and celebrate. Christmas with your family, even though they really wanted you to and couldn't understand why why you wouldn't be there. So I think in, in our day, maybe some it would look like you connecting with people at our church and saying, these people don't have any family to be with over Christmas, and I can't take them to my family's house, but I can do Christmas here and, and become a family. And that's the positive implication, is that those who connect to Christ find a new family. And so even though there might be a cultural expectation for you to travel or, or go somewhere to be with your DNA family, maybe this year you're, you're going to host people who have no family to be with, but you're their family because of your shared allegiance with Jesus. That, that's just one example that maybe parallels the Passover situation. But I think negatively, there is distancing that happens. But positively, uh, people with no family find a new family. Um, and people whose families are divided over this allegiance to King Jesus are welcomed into a family. And I think most people that we know have family issues. I I think that's just reality. And every church has church family issues too, but, but in Jesus, there's a shared allegiance that creates a new family bond.
0: So far in Matthew, Jesus has talked about kingdom morals and actions, and we've just talked about the kingdom family And now we see Jesus teaching about the mystery of the kingdom. Aaron, can you comment on Jesus' parables here?
2: Yeah, I think already you're pointing out one important piece, and that's that most of these parables are about the kingdom. And it's a way of teaching that I think is better than propositional teaching. So you might want to say, Jesus, what is the kingdom? Give me a dictionary definition of the kingdom, But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, what what can the kingdom be compared to? Um, You have to catch it with imagery um, so that it grasps onto your imagination because you can't just simply define it in that way. And these parables are not a less precise definition of the kingdom. They're more fully orbed and uh, to capture our imagination and I think our affections and ultimately our understandings. And that's one reason why Jesus is teaching in parables. But then he also does so in fulfillment of what was spoken through the prophet, is what Matthew says in chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. I will open my mouth and speak in parables. I will declare things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And this is a quote from Psalm 78, 2. Um, and I think you know that itself is interesting because that psalm goes on to really talk about God's working in the whole world. Uh, but, but the point of the parables is that those who have ears to hear are going to hear. Those who have eyes to see are going to see. So it, it keeps things hidden from some and revealed to others. And Jesus will go on to explain the parables to those who need to, to see them or hear them and don't yet understand. Uh, But I I just would want to point out that it helps us understand the way that God is working in the world in the establishment of his kingdom. Over and over again, the kingdom starts out small, and and eventually it grows. So when we look at Jesus' teaching of the kingdom and God's work in the world, I think sometimes we're tempted to be impatient and to fret that God actually is not in control, that his kingdom is not actually spreading. So I think there's great encouragement when we hear parables like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. I think these explanations of the kingdom help us understand how God works, and they instill patience and confidence in God as we read them. So then as we get to the end of Matthew in this section anyway, it seems like the majority of the parables have kind of come to a close and there's about to be a shift in scenery and that really happens at the end of chapter 13 where Jesus is rejected and we start to see this individual who is creating a following, being accepted by some, rejected by others, but more and more as we go along the way we'll see that the heat is being turned up and that Jesus is not being received with a warm welcome especially at home.
0: We haven't been spending much time in the Psalms and Proverbs passages of the weekly reading, and I just wanted to make a comment that we will try to do a whole episode on the Psalms and Proverbs. But until then, I'm just going to make a couple comments. Psalm 9 and 10 follow a Hebrew acrostic pattern. Psalm 10 lacks a title, which is unusual for a psalm in a section, and they both mention phrases and words that are virtually identical. So do you think these psalms are really one psalm and connected? I think there's good evidence to suggest that that could be the case. In the Greek translation, it is listed as one psalm, but I think that they are actually two psalms that are just pieced there together because of these similarities. Psalm 9 focuses mostly on praise and thanks, and Psalm 10 focuses largely as a lament. These two psalms are, again, like I said, very similar. And there's a lot of value of of reading those two together as the one who arranged these psalms, I think, intended.
2: I like that you're pointing out that there are such similar themes in these psalms. Sometimes when we read the psalms, it's good just to read one in isolation, like reading a piece of poetry so you get the feel of that piece of poetry. But I really like reading these two psalms together because of the way that both of them end. So Psalm 9 ends with this cry, Rise up, Lord! Do not let mere humans prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. And then the end of Psalm 10 is this. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. The Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed, so that mere humans from earth may terrify them no more. So even though, at least in the CSB, Psalm 9 is labeled as a celebration of God's justice, and Psalm 10 is labeled as the need for God's justice, and they both emphasize these various themes. Really, Psalm 9 ends as a cry out, needing God's justice, and Psalm 10 ends with the answer that God is king forever and ever. I
0: think we can also add Psalm 11 to that too because we see at the end of chapter 10, God is king forever and ever, and then we see in chapter 11, God is seated
2: on his throne, ruling and sovereign, and we can take comfort from that. Absolutely. And I think one of the beauties of reading Psalms along with Matthew right now is you see Jesus as that king, right? The one who's doing justice for the fatherless. Well, now he's giving them a family and a father and the oppressed, these individuals who've been oppressed with demons. He's been casting these out so that mere humans from earth, may terrify them no more in the presence of the God of heaven incarnate, Jesus Christ. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks again, AJ, for leading this. I am really enjoying reading the Bible in community with you guys, and I really hope that this is helpful for anyone else in our church who's following along with this Bible reading plan. This
0: podcast is a ministry of Resurrection Church. You can find out more at ResurrectionMN.org.